We're going to get right into it. Jude chapter 1. I mentioned last week that Jude and James were brothers, not James the Apostle. He was martyred early on in the history of the church, beheaded. But James, the half-brother of Jesus, became pretty much uh, the de facto leader of the church in Jerusalem. And Jude was also the half-brother of Jesus. But we looked at verses 1 and 2 last week, just kind of getting our feet wet, a little introduction. We're going to do verses 3 and 4 today. Let's read those. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our Lord into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Fathers, we look at these next couple of verses here in Jude. Uh, we're excited to study this one-chapter book, and we find that often some of the smallest books have the greatest impact. There's an old expression, Lord, that... Uh, Big things come in small packages. And so even as we got a lot out of Third John, now we're going to get a lot out of this little one-chapter book of Jude. We ask you to bless this study. Lord, just feed our spirits, touch our hearts and minds with your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved, I was very diligent, or some translations say eager, I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation or the salvation that we share. Of course, there are many variations within the body of Christ and certain doctrinal issues, but on all the cardinal issues, we should be in absolute agreement. You know, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, the atonement, the fact that Christ's death on the cross paid the price for every sin of every human being, the resurrection, these, these are non-negotiables. There are other issues that we can disagree on and still have fellowship, but Jude is talking about our common salvation, the salvation that we share. There's only one way to get saved, and that's by embracing the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross for our sins confessing our sins, repenting, turning, becoming a disciple or a follower of Christ. Jude's original intent, he says here, in writing this open letter to those who have been called, who are loved by God, his original intention was to instruct them on what we call in the theological community, soteriology. Soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. It's the study of salvation. That's what he wanted to discuss. He said, I was very diligent or eager to write to you concerning our common salvation. And it is important to have at least a basic fundamental understanding of that doctrine of soteriology so that we can share it with other people. They can also understand what it means to be saved and how to get saved. Most believers, when they first get saved, come to Christ, born again, 
they don't have anything near a full understanding of what it truly means to be saved. And all that's involved in that process, we come by faith. Ephesians tells us that faith is a gift from God. Not only can we not do anything to earn our salvation, even the faith to believe comes from Him. And so, just like a newborn baby has all the essential parts and is able to do all the essential things like eat, sleep, and fill their diapers... There are a lot of baby Christians that go around filling their diapers as well. And so, the reason that Jude would be wanting to write to them concerning our common salvation is so that they could gain a a deeper, greater understanding. And it, it all comes down to, I believe what the Bible teaches, what God says, believe in me and I will show you. Many things. That's why we study the Bible on a regular basis. God has many things to show us. But before we can even begin to understand them, comprehend them, grasp them, we need the, whole, the Spirit of God living inside of us so that we can have spiritual insight and understanding. So God says, believe in me and I will show you. But the human mentality tends to be, show me and I will believe you. Remember Thomas, doubting Thomas? He wouldn't believe the testimony of his ten compatriots, the other apostles. Judas was no longer with us. There were ten that saw Jesus on the night of his resurrection. Thomas missed out. But instead of believing their testimony, he says, I'm not going to believe it till I see him for myself. And then when he saw Jesus, he saw the wounds in his hands, the wound in his side. He believed. And Jesus said, well, blessed are you, Thomas, because you have seen and have believed. But blessed is he who has not seen and has believed. That's faith. The substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, Hebrews chapter 11. God says, believe in me and I will show you. And so we come to Christ with little more then the faith that he's imparted to us, and then we begin a lifelong process of growth, of learning, of maturing. John 14, 26, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I've said to you. So again, the Holy Spirit is given to us to teach us. We receive the Holy Spirit when we receive Christ by faith. And the Spirit of God comes to live inside of us. John 16, 13. However, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will tell you things to come. So that authority comes from the Father. We've talked before about this. It's, again, a little hard for us to understand because, first of all, we're taught in the Scriptures that there's only one God But he manifests himself in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And within that trinity, triunity, there is kind of a chain of command. Jesus, the Son, is always submissive to the Father, and the Holy Spirit is submissive to both Jesus and the Father. If you want me to explain how that works, I can't do it. When you get to heaven, you can ask God. 
But that's what the Bible teaches. And so whatever he hears, he will speak. It says he will not speak on his own authority. That authority comes from the Father. But nonetheless, we believe and then we are shown. But in the midst of this effort on Jude's part to talk to them about soteriology, about salvation, he says, I found it necessary instead, you could probably add that word in there, to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith. So as Jude was preparing to write this letter, he became aware of deceptive men who were bringing false teachings into the church and endangering the sheep. We talked about this last week. The problem was Gnosticism. The Greek word gnosko means to know. And there were several branches of Gnosticism. We mentioned asceticism, which was a very intense lifestyle of self-denial, kind of like what, what you see with some of the more primitive uh, branches of the Catholic Church, the monks who lived in caves and flagellated themselves and so forth. You could identify that with asceticism. But the branch that Jude was dealing with here towards the end of the first century was antinomianism, against the law. It was the, it was the other side of the coin. On the one hand, the asceticism was very legalistic, but the antinomianism was very liberal because this branch of Gnosticism taught that the spirit and the body were two totally different, separate things. God teaches that we are one, we're kind of a trinity within ourselves, body, soul, and spirit. That makes up the complete man, the complete woman, made in the image of God. The Gnostics taught that the body is purely carnal, evil, if you will, material things, carnal, evil, but the spirit life is totally separate. Therefore, you can do whatever you want with your body. Actually, I would propose that that branch of Gnosticism has crept into the church today big time. I was just talking with Pastor Ed about that before the service. I think it was Pastor Ed. I talked to a lot of people. But how we see a large portion of the church today Oh, I know what it was. It was one of the popular female worship artists. I won't mention the name. But um, the subject was abortion, and her response was very wishy-washy. We'll just love everybody where they're at, which we should love everyone where they're at. But basically, she seemed to be siding with the pro-choice group. I hate to say it, but that would put her at odds with the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is firmly, absolutely, completely pro-life. We just had a great pro-life march in Washington, D.C., by the way. Yeah, I would say that uh, antinomianism has crept into the church big time today. And that's what happens if you don't take a firm stand against it. So... Jude shifts gears from soteriology to apologetics, if you will, defending the faith. This pressing matter caused him to take a different direction in his message, an apologetic direction, teaching and encouraging the believers of his day to contend, which means to fight for the faith. 
And when you fight for the faith, you're going to receive opposition. You know that, right? Not just from outside the church, but from inside the church as well. The Greek word translated contend earnestly is a pagonizomai. Don't try that at home. In the middle of that word is the word agonize, a pagonizomai. It's related to the English word agony. Isn't that interesting? So this term is associated with strife and combat of a most vigorous and determined variety. The present tense of the verb indicates that the Christian struggle is to be continuous. Sorry, guys. (laughs) It never lets up. It never ends. If you're really in it, if you're really in the game, of course, Our faith is not a game. I'm using a metaphor, an analogy. But if you really are in the game, if you're really serious about following God, serving Christ, then this is a struggle that you're going to be in for the rest of your earthly days. That's why many people shrink back and take the path of least resistance. Jude believed that the foundational tenets of the Christian faith We're under attack, and he was correct, and it hasn't let up for 2,000 years. So nothing but a vigorous counterattack. Remember, Jesus said, upon this rock, me, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Gates are stationary. They do not move. Is that correct? That would indicate not a defensive posture, but an offensive posture. Get it? Storming the gates of hell with the truth and nothing but the truth. So help us God. Nothing but a vigorous counterattack would be sufficient to stave off this demonic attack on the gospel of Christ. He says that we are to earnestly contend, agonize, Over this faith, which he then says, was once for all delivered or entrusted to the saints. Jude was one of the last books of the New Testament to be written, possibly second only to Revelation. And therefore, every major doctrine of Christianity has already been established through the writings and teachings of Peter, James, John, Paul, Luke, Matthew, and Mark. And as early as the book of Acts, in fact, the Bible seems to indicate that all the major tenets of the Christian faith had been clearly enumerated. Acts 2.42. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. The faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude's making the point that any man or woman who comes along claiming to have new revelation or insight into the mysteries of God. Paul talks about those mysteries, which he says have now been revealed to us through the writings of the New Testament. Anyone who comes along claiming to have new revelation or insight into the mysteries of God is not to be listened to or trusted. Jude is saying... All of the 
elements of the Christian faith have already been delivered to the body of Christ before these Gnostics ever came along. The church, contrary to what many people might think or even believe, is not to be about the business of seeking out some new revelation from God. I know there are some quarters of the church where that's exactly what they're looking for. They've gotten bored with the old revelations and they want something new and exciting and titillating and different. The problem is, it was all delivered to the saints once for all when Jude wrote this book. What, about 170 years ago or so, Joseph Smith came along with some new revelations, came up with a new book called the Book of Mormon. It's a total sham. And yet today, they've been very successful in passing themselves off as just another Christian denomination. And when a pastor gets up and says what I just said, I'm the one who's attacked. I'm the hater, right? I told you we're going to have to agonize. We're going to have to fight to defend the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And if we just sit back and let everybody push their false belief systems on the public, then that's not fighting for the faith. I'm sorry. That's capitulating. That's compromising. That's backing down. And I, for one, won't do that. And I hope you won't either. Why? Because people's lives are at stake, folks. This is eternity we're talking about here. Right? Everybody's worried about my feelings. You hurt my feelings. That makes me feel bad. You know how bad it's going to feel when you're burning in hell for eternity? That's going to feel bad. Worse than you can possibly imagine. And it's interesting. Um, <laughs> I don't think I like this, but... You know on Google now, everybody rates everything? Well, they even rate churches. Did you know that? You go on five-star, four-star, whatever, you know. I think that's stupid. I think it's wrong. Some guy or gal that goes to church once every six months, they decide they're going to go on Google and they're going to rate your church, you know. But anyway, I, just, I decided to look at ours. No, we had a 4.3 out of 5. That's not bad. And we had a lot of 5s. We had a couple of 1s also. One guy, though, he actually used to go here. He, he gave us a pretty good rating. I'm thinking it was a 3.5 or 4. Maybe it was a 4 out of 5. And had some good things to say, but then he said that I tend to be legalistic. How many times have you heard me preach against legalism? Legalism kills. The Pharisees were the legalists. I guess because I do stand unashamedly, without compromise for the truth of God's Word, that makes me a legalist, I guess. And then the other thing was, he criticized me for calling out people like Rick Warren and Sarah Young. Sarah Young, who wrote Jesus Calling. And I bring this up in particular because we're talking about the faith that was once for all delivered or entrusted to the saints. 
Sarah Young's mega, multi-mega million dollar million selling book, Jesus Calling, she claims that the words in her book are the words of Jesus. That she asked Jesus to speak to her. She got the idea from a couple of new age ladies from England who did the same thing about 50 years earlier. And these ladies from England actually, actually practiced the occult they practice what was called automatic writing, where you sit down with a pencil or a pen, and some spirit comes upon you, and you just, without even consciously knowing what you're writing, you write whatever that spirit is writing through you. It's called automatic writing. It's an occult practice. And those words that those ladies wrote were supposed to be from God also. That book is the book that inspired Sarah Young. So Sarah Young has all these sessions with Jesus, then writes them down, prints it, sells millions of copies, and tells us that this is a message from Jesus. When I found out about all this, shared it with the men's prayer group, there was someone in that men's prayer group who had been given a copy of the book and began to read it, and all of a sudden their eyes were opened, and they told me, you know what? I just realized ever since I started reading Jesus Calling, I haven't picked up my Bible once. Now, if you were told, and I've gone over this before, so it's, I'm, not, you know, I'm not attacking Sarah Young. I've already done that. <laughs> I'm trying to make a point. If you're presented with a book that is supposed to be the latest and greatest from the mouth of God versus this old dusty Bible that was finished a couple thousand years ago, which one are you going to read? No, but I'm saying... People want the, the newest, the cutest, right? They want the new stuff. And this is the new stuff, baby. But all we have to do is go back to the Word of God and find out, well, wait a minute. The faith was once for all delivered or entrusted to the saints 2,000 years ago. It's not the job of the church today to seek out fresh revelation in fact, at the end of the Old Testament, in the book of Malachi, and at the end of the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, there are warnings about not adding or detracting from the Word of God. Amen. A curse will be upon anyone who does that. Yeah. This is so important, folks, because it's happening today right before our very eyes. People altering modifying, detracting from God's Word. Maybe not in, sometimes in the literal sense of literally modifying the Bible and then printing it and selling it or distributing it. The Jehovah's Witnesses have done that. They have their own New World Translation, which is totally bogus. The church is not about the business of seeking out some new revelation from God. It is about the business of gaining a greater understanding of that which has already been made known. It's kind of funny how people go out trying to find something new and different when they don't even fully comprehend what we've already been given. We can spend the rest of our lives studying the Word of God and there will still be things there that we have yet to know and understand. We are to explore all the information that's been provided to us by God through 
human writers filled with the Spirit of God. All Scripture is God-breathed. 2 Timothy 2.15, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Basically what we try to do here at Calvary Chapel East, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. 2 Peter 3.15-18, through 18, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, really, why would they do that? We're nice people. Why would they defame us as evildoers? Because we're standing for the truth. We're agonizing for the faith. With meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So this is the battle that Jude is describing here. Verse 4, For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, Ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Certain men. Now, although Jude doesn't mention anyone by name, it's obvious he had some specific individuals in mind. And Paul did not hesitate to mention troublemakers by name. 1 Timothy 1.18 This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. It's hard to be effective in engaging in spiritual warfare if you don't realize that you're engaged in it. And I think a lot of believers don't realize that or understand that, or at the very least, they're trying to avoid it as much as possible. But when you have an enemy that never stops, that never backs down, that's always coming after you, and you don't reciprocate by taking a stand, then you're always going to be on the run, right? I don't want to be on the run, do you? Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. If anybody's going to be on the run here, it's going to be the devil. We stand in faith, and we stand in the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God. Having faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected, concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck. So these men, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Wow. That's pretty hardcore, isn't it? I have mentioned people by name. I mentioned the uh, Google rating where I was criticized for that. But when you're a public figure and you're influencing the lives of literally millions of people, I think there's a higher level of accountability. Even for me. I certainly don't have the sphere of influence that Rick Warren or Sarah Young have or Joel Osteen, some of these people. But I, I talk to you guys every week. I'm on the internet. I have a TV program. So there's a higher level of accountability. It's one thing for you 
A lot of believers have journals, right? And so you sit down and you pray and you read your Bible and then maybe you journal. You write down things that God is showing you. Those are personal things between you and God. You may go back later on, read some of those things and think, well, that wasn't quite right. right? That's okay. We're all learning. We're all growing. But basically, Sarah Young took her journal and made millions of dollars off of it sold millions of copies, and influenced the lives of millions of people who now think that Jesus is their boyfriend and they're going to go out on a date with him. That's part of what's in there. It sadly even has some sensual or sexual overtones to it. It's just weird, folks. If you think God... You know, God does talk to us, but we don't have perfect hearing when it comes to spiritual things. We're all capable of misunderstanding or mishearing something, right? Therefore, whatever you think God is telling you, one of the things you can do, bounce it off of another believer, bounce it off of your pastor. And measure it against the Word of God first and foremost. Whatever you think Jesus is telling you, if it goes against the Scripture, that ain't Jesus. That ain't the real Jesus. Hashtag real Jesus. I remember years ago, my Baptist pastor's daughter, we were the same age, same class in high school, Nancy Harder, now she's Nancy Williams, love her, the, uh, but they were very anti-glossolalia, which is speaking in tongues, and um, we believe in it here, we don't force it on anybody, we don't make a big deal out of it. We believe all the gifts of the Spirit are for today. They didn't believe that. And once I got filled with the Spirit, one of my most fun things to do was to sit quietly at the back of the church and pray in the Spirit. Because I'm a rebel. He's a rebel. But they had a tape recording. It's funny because they didn't believe in tongues, but they believed in exorcisms. It's kind of like that old song, you can't have one without the other, you know? But they had a tape recording of this person who was being exercised, if you will. I don't mean Pilates. Uh, <laughs> he's in one of those moods today. <laughs> but in this, this tape recording, one of these demonic entities was identifying itself as Jesus. Jesus himself said there would be false or fake Jesuses, did he not? So how do we know the real Jesus? The real Jesus is always consistent. He never contradicts himself. Therefore, if you tell me Jesus told you such and such, and it doesn't line up with the Word of God, then you're wrong. So Paul mentioned these guys by name because they were doing great harm to the cause of Christ. They were undermining his ministry. 2 Timothy 2.16, but shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. It's like you give them an inch and they'll take a mile. And their message will spread like cancer. And boy, if that was the case in Paul's day, with what we have today in social media, the internet, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, it goes on and on, and Twitter. If Paul said that the false teachings could spread like cancer in his day, 
Can you imagine the, the capabilities that we have for that in today's world? Television, internet, satellite. The old expression, a lie can make it halfway around the world before the truth gets its boots on in the morning. You heard that one? You know what? A lie can make it all the way around the world now before the truth gets its boots on. Last days, folks. I would say coming soon to a planet near you, but I think it's already here. So, Hymenaeus and Philetus, we've got another guy in the picture this time, are of this sort who have strayed concerning the truth. And so it seems that Paul is talking, he says their faith was shipwrecked. Then he says they've strayed concerning the truth. Only God knew these men's hearts, but it seems that they were at one time identifying with the true church, the, the body of Christ, and yet now Paul says they've departed. Saying that the resurrection has already passed and they overthrow the faith of some. So can you imagine? Your hope is in the resurrection, right? The blessed hope, the return of Christ, the resurrection of the dead. And these guys say, sorry, you missed it. <laughs> Boy, wouldn't that shipwreck your faith? Wouldn't that... I missed it. I wasn't good enough? Well, you never were good enough. Only he's good enough. And so because they were doing these destructive things, Paul calls them out by name. 2 Timothy 4.14, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. I, I don't think Paul should even get a 4.3 personally. <laughs> I think Paul puts me to shame. I give him a 2.5 at best. Unless you think I'm serious. Hey, Russia, if you got the emails, please release them. I'm telling you something, folks. Sin makes you stupid. If you want to be smart, get saved, get filled with the Holy Spirit. God will make you smart. So Jude's warnings in this epistle center around a dangerous faction that has slipped into the Christian congregations. These false teachers were, I got five things here. They were changing the entrusted theology, the once-for-all theology delivered to the saints. They were changing it. They were trying to change the faith. Two, they were bragging about visions. These are things we'll get into as we get deeper into the letter. Bragging about visions that they'd had, which again have to be subject to the Word of God. Do they line up? Thirdly, speaking abusively of angelic beings. Some preachers, some believers think it's cute to mock the devil. God doesn't think that's cute. God created Satan. Satan is the highest of all angelic beings, although he has fallen now. He was cast out of heaven. And he's not to be taken lightly I've shared this before. Pastor Chuck Smith always used to say, I prefer to have God between me and the devil. In fact, we'll get into the end of this chapter where Michael the archangel says to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. Fourthly, creating divisions in the church. And fifthly, they were motivated by selfishness. So Jude says they've crept in unnoticed or secretly slipped in among you. 
We Christians can be so dumb at times. I said sin will make you stupid. God will make you smart. But sometimes it seems like we're still a long way from that goal. What makes a deceiver a deceiver is that he or she is deceptive. Duh. If they were easy to spot, they wouldn't be deceivers. What makes a deceiver a deceiver is they're cunning. They're deceptive. They're good at what they do. I'd love to talk about Washington, D.C., but I'll avoid that. I'll avoid that. Try to be a good boy. Jesus said, how many of you take every word that Jesus said seriously? Believe it absolutely. Jesus knows what he's talking about. Jesus said, Matthew 7, 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. Bah. Reminds me of that old Sam the Sham song, Little Riding Hood. Bah. That guy went on to become a worship leader. How cool is that? Wooly bully. Then he got saved. God can do amazing things. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. Got to get my sheep suit on. But inwardly, they are ravenous wolves. So on the outside, they give every appearance of being a believer. That's why it's called deception. They say, praise the Lord. They carry a big Bible. They go forward for prayer. They quote scripture. They pray for people. This being the case, how do we know? Matthew 7, 16, the next verse says, you will know them by their warm, fuzzy feelings. They make me feel good. You'll know them by their fruits. Here's some questions we could ask. Does their presence in the church promote unity or division? Wow, I've seen this one so many times, folks. I've seen it so many times. Oh, I'm just concerned. We need to pray. The pastor did this and that and the other thing. <laughs> oh, but then there's the pastor's wife. Well, that's something we really need to pray about. Right? And it could be somebody else besides the pastor, but the idea is they come as a wolf in sheep's clothing. They come with great concern for the health of the church and so forth. And in the process, all they do is divide and tear down. Do they support the pastor and leadership, or do they undermine and draw people to themselves? I've seen it so many times. As they say, this isn't my first rodeo. Secondly, do they speak positively of what God is doing in the church, or do they subtly sow seeds of discontent by voicing concerns over how things are being done or not being done, all in the name of, I guess I already covered this, but we'll just say it again. We need to pray. Oh, that sounds so spiritual, doesn't it? Oh, we just got to pray. It's like I shared this story before that friend of mine who had an, a grievance with me and we were at a conference. He comes up, throws his arms around me. I don't remember if he was crying. It seemed like he might have been. It was a very special moment until he said, you got to pray for me, man, because I hate your guts. We got to pray! <laughs> or we could just lay hands on them in the name of the Lord, right? 
Oh, I'm just trying to help make things better here. How many times have you heard that one? Okay, thirdly, do they criticize others for the purpose of elevating themselves? I've had people come to me and they'll criticize Pastor Ed, Pastor Dave, or who, you name it. And they actually think that that's going to win me over to their side. One of my men, I cherish and I value loyalty. I'm not perfect. Dave's not perfect. Ed's not perfect. Pastor Carl's not perfect. But we are committed and dedicated to God and to the truth of God's word. And we're loyal to one another. How about that for a concept? And you know what? That should extend to everybody here. That is a quantity that is in such short supply in our world today. Loyalty, commitment, dedication. Those are the values that made our nation great. And they're rapidly disappearing. Again, I would probably reference Washington, D.C. about now, but I won't go there. Again, what's the, why is there a problem with this? Criticizing others for the purpose of elevating themselves. Whereas the Bible says we're to do just the opposite. Just like John the Baptist said, I must decrease, he, Jesus, must increase. Do you know that's something every one of us should say? Not only about Jesus, but about our brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm not the least bit intimidated by the idea that Ed might fill in for me, Dave might fill in, Carl might fill in, and people might say, wow, man, they're giving you a run for your money. I say, praise God, I'm proud of them. The best thing that could happen is that I could reproduce myself and others and that they would actually do better than me. That's how the kingdom of God is supposed to work. Matthew 7, 16, the next part of this, by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? No. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit by their fruits. And that's what people often fail to do is to look at the fruit, the evidence, doesn't matter how smooth someone can talk, how convincing they can be, how charismatic they are. Maybe that sheep suit they've got on is a pretty high-dollar sheep suit. Maybe your genuine sheepskin is kind of ragged, dirty. That happens sometimes, doesn't it? But you got the real sheepskin. They're just wearing the suit. They seem like such a nice, gifted, talented, knowledgeable, capable person. Sorry, Charlie, but they're a bad apple. Verse 19 Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by the fruit you will know them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Antinomianism didn't work that way because the Bible says glorify God with your bodies. You're bought with a price. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul there ties in directly not only 
the spiritual aspect of our lives, but the physical. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Property of Jesus, Bob Dylan's song, good song. Property of Jesus. You don't own yourself anymore. Not if you're a true believer. You sold yourself out to God. Jesus paid the price. He owns you. Therefore, glorify God with your body, not just your mind and your spirit, but your body. All of who you are belongs to him. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? doesn't say it's a true prophecy. It just says we prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice, ooh, there it is, antinomianism, lawlessness. Jesus predicted it before it even happened. And Jesus does not refute their claims regarding prophecies, casting out demons, wonders. He simply states that relationship with him, I never knew you. We didn't have any relationship, you and I. You might have done all these things. We didn't have a relationship. I never knew you. He states, simply states that relationship with him and obedience to his word, they go hand in hand, by the way, only he who does the will of my Father. Again, how do we know the will of the Father? We immerse ourselves in the Word of God. His complete revelation to humanity, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. These two things are the telltale sign of a true believer. Relationship with God through Jesus Christ and obedience to his word. We'll continue Jude's fight for the faith next week. Let's stand. And I guess if you want to call that legalism, then I'm sorry, but the truth is the truth. Amen? Amen. And Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that it's so clearly laid out in your word that everything that we need to know about you has been revealed through the holy scriptures of the Old and New Testament. And there's just been a battle waging from the beginning of time. And obviously the one behind it is Satan himself. He is the, the one who comes to kill, to steal, and to destroy He's the accuser of the brethren. He's always looking for willing vessels to perpetrate his falsehoods on the world and even upon the body of Christ when he can. Lord, the battle's been raging for thousands of years, but perhaps not everyone in the body of Christ is fully aware of this, and that's sad because it goes on whether we know it or not. It goes on whether we engage in it or not, and if we do not engage then we will be on the run for the rest of our earthly days. But you've called us to stand. Having done all to stand, stand. In the power of your might, your word says we are to stand. And we're to take up the sword of the Spirit, the word of truth, 
That's both an offensive and defensive weapon. Lord, help us to take the words of Jude to heart because we do see these elements emerging, re-emerging, rising up within the church today. And yet, there are many souls to be one yet for Christ. And Lord, we should be about our Father's business until the very moment that we're caught up to meet you in the air. We ask you to give us strength, give us wisdom. Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit because we know that we must love those who persecute us. It's your kindness that leads us to repentance. So we need, Father, the balance of your Holy Spirit that we can stand agonizing, for fighting for the truth, and yet displaying the love of Christ to all we encounter. Please help us to do that, Lord. And Lord, we pray if there's anyone here today that hasn't fully dedicated their life to Christ, that this very day they might come forward for prayer and receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. Father, if there's anyone who feels that they have been somehow impacted by false teachings, false doctrine, and they would like to just rededicate and recommit themselves to being fully committed to the truth and nothing but the truth. Lord, please draw them by your Spirit as well, and those who need healing. Father, we have a number of people in our church and people that we're related to and connected to are struggling with health issues. And Lord, you are the God who heals. You're our creator. You're the good physician. And we humbly call out to you for healing for those who are in need of it. Lord, impart to us the faith that we need to trust you for the provisions that we need on a daily basis, our daily bread, the healing of our bodies, strong, powerful mind. Thank you, God. You're a good God. We love you. We praise you. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.